very good to be here with you this morning. I greet all of you in the name of Jesus, and I feel kind of like, I feel like I'm at home here. Uh, I want to thank you for your your hospitality. I was I felt the warmth this morning as we came in, greeted many of you, and I know most of you, so that helps too. So it is very good to be here to worship with you this morning. Um, just thinking about different connections I have with people here, and I could say a bunch of names and how I know you and how long I've known you and all that, but I, I don't think I'll do that, except I will mention uh, Jonathan, just the story about teachers. Um, Jonathan was one, of, was one of my teachers many years ago, and I'd look at him as probably one of my favorite teachers, and I've been blessed by him. And his sons have grown up, his children have all grown up. I remember on our senior trip, <laughs> was it Luke? Is that the one? Is that the one beside you there? He was a baby. I don't know how old he was, a couple months old. So that's unbelievable. I heard he was baptized just recently here. Life goes on. Things happen. Things change. But uh, God is faithful. Story goes of a young minister many years ago. He was he took on a a church, country church in Oklahoma somewhere, and he had ideas of going in and reviving this church because the the church, while it was had been there many years, was was dying out. And this, this ambitious young minister came, he had stars in his eyes, and he had ambition, and he had great hopes for the future of the church. He thought he could turn it around, so he came and he put his energy into the church, he preached with all his heart, and he thought it would make a difference, but at some point he realized things were not going to change. Finally, he had one last idea, so he announced to the local newspaper that the following, uh, the following weekend... There was going to be a funeral for the church since the church had died. He decided to have a funeral service for the church. And everyone who wished could attend. Well, for the first time in, his, in, in many years, the place was packed out. In fact, people came a half hour early to see what a, what a church's funeral would be like. Many people came. They were even looking through the, uh, through the windows because the church was full. But when they got there, since many of them were early, they were shocked to see there was a casket in the front of the church. And on the casket was... Many bouquets of flowers. So as the service progressed, the, uh, the minister gave the eulogy, and he said that as soon as he was done, the people could pass by and pay their last respects to the dying church. Well, most people were anxious to see what was in the casket. So after he finished the eulogy, he opened the casket slowly and pushed the flowers aside, and the people get, began to file by. And one by one, as the people went by, they looked in, and after they looked in, they rather sheepishly hung their heads and walked out of the church door because inside the cast, it was a large mirror. As they walked by, they saw the church that had died. Well, I hope that's not the case here this morning. I don't believe it is, but as I was thinking through that story a little bit, I had to wonder, what makes a church die? What is it that causes people who were at one time on fire for the Lord to lose the fire and eventually begin to die out. Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Very familiar passage I like to use as my text this morning. Revelation, chapter 2, and this is where the different churches have been addressed by John. And this is to the church at Ephesus. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. I'm going to stop with that for now. Very familiar passage, but he gives a lot of praise before he ends with a very startling statement, saying, I have something against you. We could ask the question, what were the strengths of this church? Can we identify today? Does your church, I don't, I know you, but I don't know, I don't know the workings of your church very well. How do you identify with this? This was a church at Ephesus that was a busy church. By all appearances, there was a lot of good stuff going on. Some of their strengths were, he says, I know their works. You guys are doing good stuff. In fact, he said, I know your labor. I think they were busy. There was a lot of activity going on. They had, they had church activities. They had outreach activities. He says they were busy. And it says you have patience. They kept on even when the going got tough. And he says, you can't bear those who are evil. They even had a sensitivity to sin, I believe, in the church. They were rejecting false teachings. They were vigilant for truth. But he says, all that, all these things you're doing, he says, I have something against you. And you said, you've lost your first love. They looked fine on the outside. You could say, by all, by all appearances, they were a growing church. I think if you look at churches today, you could see models of that. The church was thriving. But what was gradually happening, I don't believe it began this way, but gradually they were moving more and more away from a love for God to just a formal knowledge-based worship experience. There was no heart. The heart was gone out of the church. I ask us all the question this morning, and this has been good for me again as I've been thinking about this. My question is, what is our first love? He said you lost it to them. So my question, first of all, is, well, what is it? What is our first love? Flip your Bibles now over to Mark chapter 12. Jesus gives us an idea of what he's talking about, I believe, in Mark chapter 12. And just as a backdrop to the verses I'm going to read, uh, in Mark chapter 12, from about 13 to 17, the Pharisees had come to Jesus, and they wanted to trip him up. Uh, they weren't too happy with him because the things he had to say was directed towards them. They weren't very happy. So they had come with a scenario saying, should we pay taxes? Well, Jesus very skillfully uh, used the illustration of the coin and said, pay to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's. Well, so they were put, their uh, argument was put down. And so the Sadducees come after that and they decided to take a, take a shot at Jesus and they asked him a question about the resurrection. And it was a story of if a, if a man marries a woman, he dies and she marries all the brothers, no children, whose wife is she in the resurrection? That was more or less the, the, the uh, question. Jesus put that question to rest as well. Now he comes up on this. And in 28, Mark 12, 28, says one of the scribes, or one of the teachers of the law, he came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, he asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. 
And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. I don't know if this man was sincerely seeking or if he, too, was, was trying to see what Jesus would have to say. He seemed to be intrigued by the previous answers that Jesus had made. A parallel passage in Matthew about the same account, in Matthew twenty-two forty, Jesus made the comment, because the man had said, that it's, it's more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Loving God is more important than all that. So he caught that. In Matthew, Jesus said, on these two commandments, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, he says, those, on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that these people were practicing to this point, he says, all of that hangs on these two foremost truths. That's where the beginning is. So we ask the question, what is our first love? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. How do you separate all that? I'm not going to go into that much this morning for the sake of time. We could talk about the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength, but just briefly, our heart, the, the center of our affections. Think of, if those of you that are married, that relationship between a husband and a wife, there's just, there's affection there, there's, there's the feeling. He says, love me with that kind of heart. The soul, that also, that's more of our feelings as well, the emotional feelings of love for God, our mind, our intellect. You get the picture that those four things he lists is the whole man. It's all of us. So he says, I want you to love me with everything. All the energy you have intellectually, all the energy you have physically, uh, my greatest and foremost commandment is that you love me with all of those because everything else hangs on that. So we could summarize that and say, love God with your whole being, everything you are. Well, how do we do that? I think all of us would say this morning, well, I know that, and that's what I want to do. How do we summarize all this in this command? What is our first love? Well, I would present to you this morning that I believe our first love is loving God passionately. How many of you are passionate people? Uh, some aren't sure if they want to commit. Sometimes we look at passion as being almost a, a, uh, a gift or a character trait or a uh, personality trait. You know, that person is just so passionate. Everything they do, they're just so into it. And I think there's, there is something to that. But so how do you love Pat God passionately? You might say, well, I'm just not a passionate person. You know, I'm low-key. Uh, I don't get too excited over anything. Well, I believe that you are passionate about something, whether you realize it or not. We all are. What is passion? Well, we could define it. Dictionary definition would be an intense emotion which compels action. I want to just stop here and say I believe that passionate love for God is not merely emotion. It's not merely an emotional experience. Um, someone has defined emotionalism as being unwarranted expression or display of emotion. Unwarranted, meaning it's not legitimate. I can come in here this morning, I can close my eyes and worship, and I can do all kinds of things. And in my heart, I'm disobedient to God. I 
I've cursed God by the way I live. I've, I've defamed his name this week. And I can still get worked up into an emotional experience and feel like I've worshipped. But that's not what passionate love is. It's not an unwarranted expression or display of emotion. Something slightly different. Uh, some time ago, I heard a message by, by Rick Rhodes. Some of you might know who he is. He's, a, he's an instructor. I go, he made this comment. He says, you don't do passion. He says, you be passion. It's not a switch you turn on. Uh, the ushers that came here first this morning didn't flip on the passion switch when they came in so that we could actually have worship today. Because it's not something you can just create in one day. It's not something that you, you do in activity or if we somehow organize the service right, there'll be passionate worship. No, it's who we are. You be passion. You don't decide today where your passion lies. It lies today where you put it yesterday. It's a result of the choices in your past. I asked you before, are you a passionate person? Some of you aren't sure. Some of you say you are. Well, let me ask you this. If you're not sure, what are the things that stir you? What is it that really gets your juices going, whether it's in a conversation or whether it's an activity you do? Think about the things. What really drives you? What do you think about, talk about? If people are with you for half a day or even a couple hours, what do they start to get from you? That, man, this guy's really into this. You know, it's just the conversation gravitates there. What's your passion? Give me an example. Um, I enjoy deer hunting, and... Uh, some of you maybe do too, and some of you are maybe disgusted by that, and that's okay. But I do enjoy that, and I have ever since I was young. And there's just something about getting out in the woods and enjoying and enjoying that. I like to uh, read about it. I like to talk to other hunters about it. I even like to watch hunts on film. And uh, ever since I've been a teenager, well, I fed that desire, and, and a number of years ago, about uh, well, 11 years ago, we moved to, to, to Belize for a couple of years, and the first year that we were there, I was teaching school, and our school session started in September, which around here, deer season starts in October. And I just thought, you know, we go away for a couple of years, and, and everything from behind, for everything from home is just left behind. But, you know, when October the 1st got closer, and I was just getting in the groove of school, and I was already starting to get a little homesick, and I started to think about deer hunting, and I thought, oh, dear, this is going to be hard. And, you know, as much as I wanted to just flip off the switch and say, well, I don't have a passion for that anymore, I couldn't because I had invested so much of my life, so much of my time and my energy into this hobby. And so when I wanted to be done with it, I couldn't just turn it off. I could not simply focus on the job at hand. Made it a tough year. The next year got a little better. In the third year, I was doing fine. But it took some time. So think about that. What, I what is the thing that's your passion? That if it was taken away from you, you'd have a tough time with it. It's something you've been feeding on in the past. Uh, another example, uh, I don't know how many youth here, I, maybe I shouldn't say youth because I'm not really a youth anymore, I'm older, but some of us are in, get, get a little excited about sports sometimes. And uh, whether it's playing sports or maybe you followed it, on, followed it in the news or, or whatever, a couple of years ago, uh, those of you that keep track at all of, of Notre Dame football. I know that always rings a bell for a lot of these young guys. They get all excited about Notre Dame football. A couple years ago, uh, I think it was two years ago or so, they had a really good season. And um, I had decided, you know, I, I just, this is something, it's a distraction. I don't, I don't, I just don't want to follow. But, you know, they kept winning. 
And week after week, I'd say, hey, but Notre Dame won again. And uh, so towards the end of the season, you get to thinking, well, man, if they win again, you know, you start thinking they might, they might go on. This might go somewhere. They might lead to something. And a couple times, I knew they were playing Saturday afternoon or Saturday night. And, well, you know, by Sunday morning, I just had to know, did they win or not? But, you know, I found it interesting as I would go to church the next Sunday morning, my mind was just, I'd read up on it. I either maybe listened to the game or whatever, and, and my mind was just spinning. And as much as I wanted to focus on, on worship that morning, it was hard. It was hard. You say, well, why was it hard? Well, because I'd invested, I had invested my energy into it. It was becoming part of my passion. And I couldn't turn it off. I came to worship God, and I couldn't turn it off because it just kept spinning in my mind. What's the thing in your mind? Are you able to come to church on Sunday morning free, ready to worship the Lord? Or is there something else? When Jesus, when God said, love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, is there something else that is right up there pretty close to that affection where you can't turn it off when it's time for you to get alone with God and worship? What is it for you? I don't know what it is for you. It doesn't matter what I say about my walk with the Lord. I can give a glowing testimony anytime I want to. But what I'm passionate about in my life is going to tell it all. That's really where the proof is, whether or not I love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Well, what does passionate love look like in action? And I'm not going to turn to it, but just a very familiar story. Uh, David and Goliath, the story we learn from children. David and Goliath, when David as a youth comes onto the scene of a battlefield where he's coming to bring something to his brothers, and as, as the giant Goliath comes out again after harassing the army for 40-some days, he comes out again, and when David hears, I don't know what all Goliath said, but I can imagine he cursed and he swore and he, I don't know, I'm sure it was awful what came out of his mouth. But as, as David heard this blasphemy against the God he loved, it just clicked. There had to be action. And says, David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, Well, what's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine? He wanted to know, come on, what's going to happen here if I kill him? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I think what stirred up David was, how dare someone curse at my God? How dare he do that? And it, and it brought up an indignation. Later, as David is talking to King Saul about this, these are David's words. Now remember, Saul is head and shoulders above every man in Israel. This is a, he, is a, he is a great guy, Saul is. And I don't know if they were standing side by side. I like to imagine they were. But I can almost see David looking up into the eyes of Saul, a big man. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Can you imagine that? He says, Saul, don't have a heart attack over this guy. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David was unafraid of the giant. He was unafraid of speaking out. My question to you is, how did David get that kind of confidence and courage? Did David show up on the battlefield and suddenly say, hey, I think there's a moment here where we need some passion. I think I'll turn up my passion dial, and I'm going to step up. I don't think that's how it worked. I think it was a quality of life. It was the quality of life that David had. It was the relationship with God. It was a result of his decisions in the past. And I've, uh, I've shared this before, I think, with our, with our youth. But, you know, I don't, David spent a lot of time alone on the fields and with the sheep. And I've wondered already what David would be like. What, what would a David be like today? 
if he's out there in the fields with the sheep? You think he'd be on the iPad and his Xbox and, you know, got some time to kill here? I don't know how it would be in a modern day, but I just believe David had a quality of relationship with God that was so beautiful, just so deep. And out of all that, when David was confronted with, with someone who would defy his God, there was courage at hand, there was strength at hand, there was fearlessness that he didn't just, uh, uh, he didn't just acquire in the moment. I, I truly believe that. So our first love is passionate love for God. Question, my second question is, how do you lose it? How do you lose your first love? Because in Revelation he said, you've lost it. You've got a lot of good stuff going on, but you've lost your first love. Uh, someone else said one time that, that very seldom does a man take a giant leap from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Very rarely do you see someone just forsake God and forsake all and go into the worst sins possible. But how does it happen? How does it happen? Little steps. It's those small steps. The shady areas, maybe the gray areas we call them sometimes, it's those steps we slowly start to move away from God. What are those small steps in your life? Is it, first of all, just outright sin? Is it some kind of a compromise? Maybe you're losing some of your good disciplines, spiritual disciplines, spending time with God in, in the Word, praying. Uh, I think another thing we see sometimes when someone begins to lose their first love is a withdrawal from the body, withdrawal from accountability. Uh, not wanting to to be with brothers and sisters anymore because there's there's a switch going from passionate love for God to a passion for something else. It's very gradual. Sometimes we don't notice it. And the sad thing is, is we can keep right on going. We can keep right on serving God, living the Christian life in action, but in, in, a, in attitude and in heart, we're growing cold. According to Revelation, that's true. The church can keep right on going. The activities can keep right on going. We can grow cold. Uh, Matthew 24, 12 and 13 says, Because of the increase of wickedness, this is the NIV, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I think that's talking about the latter days. The love of most, that's sad. Let's make sure that's not us. It says, The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So how do you know personally? If you've lost your first love. Here's a little test. I want you to turn to Matthew 6. It's a scripture that's jumped out to me in, in the recent, in the last year. Matthew 6, I'm going to read three verses, 19 to 21. It says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Then 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, the more I read that, I think I thought it was the other way around. Where my heart is, that's where my treasure is going to be. But here he says, Where you've placed your treasure is where your heart is going to be. So if I've placed my treasure in the wrong things, then I believe I'm losing my first love. If my treasure is something other than God. What's your treasure today? The things that you're passionate for today will probably dictate where you're investing your treasure. Is it in a big 401k? Is it in a new house or a newer car or just material things? 
or maybe it's other things that you want to just pursue with your time, hobbies, those kinds of things. Where's your treasure? Someone, maybe you've heard this phrase before. I, I've heard it many times. Someone that says, well, you know, as long as the heart's in the right place, you know, then they make a statement after that. As, you know, as long as the heart's in the right place. Well, according to this scripture, I think if the treasure's in the right place, then your heart's going to follow that. That's the test. Where's your treasure? Or they might say, he means well, you know, heart's in the right place. Where's your treasure? So if you want to know if you're loving God with all your heart, ask yourself the question, what is my treasure and what, are, what am I investing my life in? Be honest with God when you ask that question. What you feed on today will be your passion tomorrow. I'm going to give you a little story here. It's kind of a uh, maybe a parable in some ways, but I think it uh, speaks some truth. On a dangerous seacoast that was notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave band of men who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time and energy and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Therefore, emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded, and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, systems, and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place, and its objectives began to shift. It was now used as sort of a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings. Saving lives and feeding the hungry and strengthening the fearful and calming the disturbed rarely occurred by now. Fewer members were now interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do the work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. The life-saving motifs still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty. Some were terribly sick and lonely. Others were from other races, and they were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside and away from the club, so victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside the club. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings, which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether and place all involvements with shipwreck victims somewhere else. It's too unpleasant, they said. It's a hindrance to our social life. It's opening the doors to folks who are not our kind. Well, as you would expect, some still insisted upon saving lives, that this was their primary objective. Their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help, regardless of their club's beauty or size or decorations. 
Well, they were voted down. They were told if they still wanted to be involved in saving lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into just another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, you understand, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they perish at sea, and so few seem to care, so very few. Is that the condition of the Church of Jesus Christ today in America? We've lost our mission. I believe it's because we lose our first love. We forget why God has placed us here. We forget what our mission is in the world. And we get distracted. Our passion lies elsewhere. For the final question, so how do you find, if you've lost it, how do you find your first love again? Flip back to our text in Revelation. It gives us the answer. Revelation 2, verse 5. How do we get it back? He starts off, he says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He gives several comments here. Verse 5, what's the first thing he says? If you've lost your first love, he says, number one, remember. Remember what God has done in your past. Uh, in Second Peter, I think it's Second Peter 1, where he talks about all these things. You know, add to your faith, faith virtue, add to your virtue, godliness, all those things. At the end of that, of that portion of scripture, uh, he talks about those who are not growing, those who are not adding to their faith, and, and that's not happening. He says that they have forgotten that they were purged from their old sins. I believe that's what he's talking about in Revelation when he says, remember, remember that you have been purged, you have been bought, your sins have been taken away from you. Remember from where you've fallen. Think back. All of you have had, I hope all of you have had an experience, uh, an encounter with God where you were saved. And think back to the joy, the freedom. Think back to all those things you, you felt and say, well, where am I now? Do I still experience that? And if I don't, why don't I? He says, remember from where you've fallen and repent. The word repent always just jumps out at me because we live in a, in a world today where there's, there's so much. Every condition has a therapy for it. Every condition has a name. Uh, the latest, I think, is if you're sad, SAD. Have you heard of that one? Seasonal affective disorder because of the long winter. I think I'm sad. So many people have sad right now, seasonal affective disorder. So we, we, there's so many ways to get, to get therapy or to reform people. And uh, you hear so much about even, even in um, people coming out of, the, out of the prison system. You know, they need to be educated as if education can fix all that. But here he says, you know, the solution to getting right with God is repent. That means stop what I'm doing and change and go the other direction. And that's towards God. So if you find yourself in that position, he doesn't really give us a five-step process. He says repent. 
and do the first works. Go back to where you've been, or else I will come to thee quickly. What astounds me and, and maybe frightens me a little bit as I think about myself and my own church, the church that was so active, the church at Ephesus, there was so much going on. And here he says, I am on the verge of coming to you quickly and removing your candlestick because you've lost love. There's no love there anymore. That should sober us as we think about that. Just one caution I want to I leave you here with you here. As, see, I, I'm very inspired by passionate people. When I, there's a lot of, I could name people to you right now that their lives have impressed me so much. And, and there's going to be a temptation for me to try to model what they do. You know, if this is what a passionate person does and looks like, I'll try to do that. We have to be careful that we don't seek passion, okay? Passion is a result of who we are. It's a result of what God is doing in our lives. So we need to seek God. And just another reference to a story in the Old Testament. You know of Jehu. Uh, Jehu was the guy who drove furiously. You know, you just see this car flying down the road, and that's Jehu. And so you'd say, Jehu's passionate. He just goes from one thing to the next. Well, he was passionate. And as he, as he was purging Israel, he killed the 70, or he was responsible for the death of the 70 sons of Ahab, he was cleaning house. He saw it as his job to restore the kingdom. And so he does all that. And in the middle of that, at one point, as he's on his way to, to kill someone else, he meets a man on the road. I think it was Jehonadab was his name. And he asked, you know, are we brothers here? And he pulls him up to the chariot. And right after he pulls him up into the chariot, he boasts to him and he says, come, see my zeal for the Lord. Come watch what I'm doing. Look at all the things I'm doing for the Lord. I think it's interesting that the scripture inserts that because while Jehu was a good man, he also failed in his life. If you follow the story on, Jehu it says he did not forsake the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. There was still idol worship that happened in his time. So passion and zeal by itself is not the objective. Seek God, obedience to God, and out of that passion will flow. You don't even have to turn it on. You don't even have to make it happen. It'll pour out of you. Sometimes God will bring things to get your attention. About uh, about four years ago, God got our attention, my wife and I. Uh, we have a daughter, Savannah. She's five years old. And uh, she had, many of you know her story, but she had a, she had a seizure, a, a bad seizure that lasted quite a while one night and did a lot of brain damage. She went to the hospital, was there for about seven weeks. And there was a number of the first several weeks, we both just stayed down. My wife and I stayed down there because we thought, we didn't know, if she, is she going to make it or not? She almost died. But I, I, I had never before experienced that, and I don't think I quite have since then either. I've never felt such a total dependence on God. When there, you come to a point where there is just nothing else you can do. You can't call anybody else. You can't, you know, I'm thankful for hospitals, and I'm thankful for doctors, but they have their limitations. There's a time when it's in the hands of God. And sometimes God will take you to a point like that, and he's going to put you there to see what you're going to do. And you can choose to become dependent, or you can choose to become angry and bitter at God and say, God, this isn't fair. Why do I have to go through this and nobody else does? And today, it's still a constant reminder, you know, for a number of weeks there, we didn't know, first of all, if she would survive, and then we didn't know, well, how far will she come back? And uh, today, she doesn't walk or talk or eat. We have to feed her through a tube or do much on her own. And every day, you know, I see her out in her, we have a little bed for her out in our living room, 
Every day I see her out there, it's a constant reminder to me that, God, I need to depend on you. Because this gets, sometimes it gets really old. And sometimes we don't want to do this anymore. But God puts those things in your life sometime to get our attention. And he got my attention. I'm not perfect by any means, but God can use those things to speak to us and help us see that, you know what? Without God, really, I, I'm nothing. I really have nothing to offer anyone. And in closing here, I just want to challenge you. As, you. as you think about your relationship with God, your love relationship with God, is it passionate? Is it evident? Uh, I can't even give you the reference, but Scripture says that someone who is, I can't, I'm not even saying it right, but out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know what I'm talking about? When, when the presence of God is in us, when we, are, when we, are, um, we have a relationship with him, it becomes a sweet relationship. I just, I just picture just gushing. People are getting wet around you. I hope people are getting wet. That living water has a way of touching people. So if that's not your experience today, I would just ask you to uh, listen to the voice of Jesus in Revelation 3.20. As a closing scripture, I want to give you this scripture here. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come. I will come to him. And will sup with him and he with me. I can just picture Jesus coming. He desires that kind of a love relationship. And yet he's a perfect gentleman. He will allow you to have other passions. He will allow you to do whatever you want to do. But his desire is come. He says, when I knock, if you open the door, I will come. You can have a love relationship with Jesus that is beautiful. He with me. And then in verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. What a blessing. Can you hear Jesus knocking on your heart this morning? And if you do, will you open the door? Shall we pray? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our loving Father, we just come before you at the close of this time, Lord, and and uh, you've told us that the greatest commandment is to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. Love you passionately. Put all our energy into it. And Father, I just know how weak we are. I know how weak I am and how many times that my desires turn elsewhere and I start to pursue other things more than you. Father, I just pray for each of us as we examine our lives and we ask the question, have I lost my first love? Can people see that you really are number one in my life? You are the, you are the, uh, the passion of my life and everything else falls secondary. God, I just pray that that could be true of each of us here this morning. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, even as we struggle. Sometimes we, uh, we see our own failures and we become overwhelmed by them and we say, well, Lord, I'm so far from here. How can I ever... How can I ever get back? How can I ever be passionate for you when this is where I'm at, where I'm at now? But Lord, you give us the promise that if when you knock, if we open the door, you're going to come in and you're going to fellowship with us. And Lord, that that love will will be fanned that into flame and it's going to become a burning uh, a burning within us. And out of our belly is going to flow those rivers of living water where people will get wet around us just by knowing us and relating to us. That's my prayer for myself and for all of us this morning. Just commit this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.